All right, let me uh, say a prayer, and then we'll get started. Father God, thank you for this opportunity to preach your word. Uh, I pray that this would be pleasing to you, uh, that you would uh, give me courage to speak your words, and that you would just speak to our hearts uh, during, the, during the message and uh, through the rest of the service. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, I really am someone who loves stories. Uh, jumping ahead a little bit there. Uh, I love stories, but I don't really consider myself a storyteller. Maybe some of you have that friend in your life who can always tell a good story. Well, that's not me, but th- that person who you listen to, you know, you listen to them and they begin to just tell the story that draws you in and you're so engaged and you're a part of the story. And by the end, you discover that the story is just about them like tying their shoelaces. Uh, I love a good story. I love to be drawn into a story. And today, there are lots of stories everywhere. Now, maybe some of you are familiar with the concept of a story arc. A story arc is kind of the narrative of a story. So usually there's some exposition at the beginning, and then there's an inciting incident. There's something that happens that sets off a series of events, a series of conflicts that eventually that just keeps building and building and building until the climax, until kind of the final incident. And then after that, there's resolution. There's kind of the, the down arc, and there's uh, kind of a conclusion to the story. That is what we call a story arc. And there are story arcs Everywhere, everywhere that draw us in. We're inundated with stories. Some of them are very tiny stories. So when you hear a radio ad or you watch a television commercial, you are being drawn into a story. Now, a TV story, a TV commercial story usually goes like this. Uh, You're feeling depressed. You're sad. You're anxious. you're, you're, You're nervous. There's the conflict. There's the kind of the inciting incident. Well, we have, uh, we have the solution for you, this thing that will solve all your problems. For only 17 payments of $32.99, you can get a stainless steel back-scratching spork that will, that will fix all of your needs. And you won't have your money anymore, but we certainly will. That's kind of the, the, the resolution. You'll be enriched uh, physically, uh, emotionally, but we'll be enriched financially. That's kind of how the TV commercial story goes. Now, movies and, and, and kind of TV episodes, they take this, they expand it to 90 minutes. Uh, a book takes it and expands it to several hundred pages, or maybe if it's a short story, just a couple uh, pages. And there's always a hero to the story, isn't there? There's a hero that has to enter into the story and has to choose to either be engaged in the story and go along with the series of events to to try to come to a resolution, to come to a solution to the kind of the, the peak of the story, the climax, or to head a different direction. Now, one of the reasons I love uh, kind of the, the, the big stories, I like the Lord of the Rings, uh, I like the books, and I also like, uh, like kind of the films. I also like Star Wars, like the Marvel Universe. I like these big stories, these overarching narratives, because it takes one story and it fits it into a great multitude of stories, like a, a, a kind of a big narrative. So they're standalone stories. There's individual stories that suddenly you see how they fit in the big story. 
Now, today, we're looking at the story of everything. We're looking at the story of the Bible. And I want you to imagine for a moment that, not that you're caught into this story quite yet, but I want you to think of your favorite story, so your favorite book, television, comic, whatever it is, and imagine yourself that you are now in the story. All right, so you have your favorite Uh, You have your favorite story. Now you are a character in that story. And if you don't read stories, you are a character in your favorite textbook. All right? Now you're you're a story. You're you're in there. How would you feel? How would you respond? Would you be nervous? Would you be excited? Would you wonder, I wonder if this story will will turn out like it did for Frodo for me. Uh, If I were a character in a story, I would have a lightsaber, a ring that turns me invisible, and I'd be able to shoot spider webs out of my wrist. That would would kind of be my character. So today, I do want to direct our hearts to a story that I actually believe you're a participant of, that you're a participant in, that you are a, a, a character in this story. It's the story of everything, but it's the story of everything that's described in the pages of the Bible, it's the big story. It's the, what we call the meta-narrative. And one of the reasons I believe Christianity is true is because I believe it explains everything, that it explains all of reality. Everything from science to your everyday life, it has a way that it fits into the big story that the Bible tells us about. And I believe this story is ultimately written by God, that he started the story, that it was created in the mind of God, that God created everything and he set in motion this story, the part I play in it and the part you play in it. And as we look at the book of Exodus, I hope you'll find uh, your place in the story. But before we get to the book of Exodus, we really need to look at the beginning of the story. See, the story of everything begins in Genesis, The first two books of the Bible go Genesis and then Exodus. Now, because God is the author, we can trust what we we read in Genesis, and we can uh, read it to kind of understand uh, some, some truths, some things about kind of the beginning of the story. Genesis, the word Genesis actually means beginning. And it's, so it's the beginning of the story about everything. Exodus is really chapter 2, so we, we need to read or at least do a review, an overview of chapter 1. And if you are interested in kind of diving deeper into Genesis, we have a sermon series on it that you can find on our website. But first, I want us to, to recognize that the story starts really good. God starts the story perfectly uh, it's kind of like a, an unpolluted sunset. It's, it's beautiful. There's, there's, there's no problems in the beginning. In the beginning, creation is perfect. Uh, people are at peace with God and peace uh, with each other. Uh, and we see this in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. God created the heavens and the earth. He created everything. He created the first man, the first woman. They had a good relationship. In fact, God said that everything was good, but when he got to creating man and woman, he said everything was very good. And what does he tell the first humans to do? He says, go out and and multiply, fill the earth. Genesis 1, 28 says, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. So what is God saying here? He's saying, go out and, and, and all of creation is good, but you're really good. People are very good, 
And the Bible in Genesis chapter 1 says that people, men and women, are made in the image of God. So when God says, go out and be fruitful and multiply, he's saying, go out and fill my creation with even more goodness, with more beauty, with more wonder, because you're filling it with people that are made in my image, and there's something special, there's something significant about that. So this is how the story begins. It, it looks beautiful. It, it, there's so much hope. There's a future. There's, there's an eternity of bliss just around the corner. But then something bad happens. Humans, people, the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, they introduce badness. They introduce evil. They introduce conflict into the story. They introduce hostility, hostility towards God and hostility towards each other. And they do this by giving in to temptation, giving in to the, 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 the test of the serpent. See, there's a character, there's this evil character who enters into the garden, and he comes there to, to tempt the first two people, Adam and Eve. And, and in that temptation, Adam and Eve, for a moment, they believe that God doesn't have their best at, my, at heart, that God doesn't have his perfect plan for them. And they disobey God. They act on that disbelief. That's what the eating of the apple really is. And in that moment, we don't know if it was an apple, eating of the fruit. In that moment, they disobey God and everything falls into sin. That inciting incident sets off everything. See, we, not God, introduced hostility into the relationship, didn't we? And the consequence of this new hostility is death, is sin. Sin causes death. And I want you to notice a verse, Genesis chapter 3, 19, for how uh, uh, kind of God describes, I think we're, yes, we're at the right place. Uh, God describes uh, the kind of the consequences of sin. It should be verse 19. By the sweat of your brow... You will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. So the consequence of that, that initial sin that we were living in life and beauty, the consequence of, of disobeying God is to, to, to sink into the dirt, to die in the mud, to return to nothingness in one sense, to, to waste away. And it's all because we disobeyed God, because we introduced hostility into the relationship. But the good news is that God, even as we are receiving the consequences of our sin, that, that we're going to die, that we're going to turn to dust after our lives, God introduces a plan of hope, a plan to rescue us. So Genesis chapters 1 through 3, or 1 through 2, are really the goodness of the relationship, kind of that initial beginning. And then Genesis chapter 3 uh, through 11 is the consequences of that sin. There's more hostility, there's anger, there's murder, there's, there's war, there's, there's sin enters the world and the consequences of it. And then in Genesis chapter 12 through 50, we see God introducing a rescue plan to rescue you and me, to rescue his people. In fact, even before God kind of gave the consequence, so the verse I read about uh, 
people turning into dust. That was God saying that to Adam, to all humankind, that the consequence of your sin is death. But even before that, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God gives us hope. In Genesis 3.15, God says this to the woman, to Eve. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now, God says this to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman. And between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is known as the proto-euangelion, the, the first gospel, the first good news. And you've heard this many times, but we all need to understand it. Because God is cursing the snake. He's saying there's going to come one day someone from Eve's line, from Eve's descendants. There's going to come an individual who is going to defeat you. (laughs) My son Adam did not defeat you in the garden. My son Adam failed. He wasn't good enough. And he was perfect. He didn't have any sin, but he wasn't good enough. I'm going to send another. And this other son is going to defeat you, the serpent. And so the rest of the story of the Bible is pointing towards that moment. It's a story leading up to that. It's a rescue story. And as we work further along in Genesis, we meet a man named Abraham. Now, when we meet him, his name is Abram, but God changes his name. And when we, when we run into this character in Genesis chapter 12, we wonder for a moment, is this the serpent crusher? Is this the man Is this the descendant of Eve who is going to defeat the serpent? Is he going to be the one to deliver us, to to bring about the rescue, to restore Eden, to bring back everything to perfect holiness with God before? But no, it's not Abraham. But it is going to be one of Abraham's descendants. Abraham has a son named Isaac. And Isaac has a son named Jacob. And it's through Abraham's family, through his descendants, that we're going to get that rescuer that one who will save us from our sins. Now, Jacob has 12 sons, and Jacob is renamed by God, just like his grandpa. He is renamed to Israel. He gets this new name, and he has 12 sons. So his 12 sons are called the 12 sons of Israel. And they eventually become the 12 tribes of Israel. But when Jacob has his sons, he has a son named Joseph. And through a series of events, he ends up down in Egypt, in a land far away from him, from his homeland. And at Egypt, God raises him from a place of kind of lowliness and destitution to a place of authority. And once he raises him to that place of authority, there's a famine in the land, and he's able to provide for his family. He brings his family down from their homeland. He brings Jacob and his brothers down, and he provides for the family in Egypt. Egypt. We're about to enter this point of the story. This is where Exodus begins. The 12 sons, they've died, and their descendants are now in Egypt, and they've multiplied. The real question is, the real point is that there's a rescue story, and God's unfolding the rescue story. And I want us to pause for a moment and ask a question before we continue the rescue story in the book of Exodus. I want to ask us this question. Do you want to be rescued? (laughs) If the book of Exodus is all about a rescue story and somehow you're involved in the story, are you interested in being saved? 
Are you interested in being rescued? If you are indeed a character in this story that's drowning, that's in need of salvation, that is dying because of sin that will one day turn into dust, do you realize that? And are you interested in being saved? I hope the answer is yes. At the beginning of every good story, there's a choice that the protagonist, the kind of the hero of the story has to make. There's a, there's a choice that this character has to make to either enter into the story or to step aside and say, I don't want to be a part of this story. Now notice, we never watch movies about that character. We never go to the theater and learn about the, just watch 90 minutes of someone sitting on their couch. You know, we learned about Frodo. We, we learned about Frodo going to Mordor, if you've read The Lord of the Rings. But what about Larry? What about the hobbit Larry who's still fishing beside uh, the stream in the Shire? Why don't we learn about him? It's because he didn't enter into the story. He didn't see his need to be rescued. Frodo realized that there's a problem. There is a real problem in this world. There's Mordor, there's the all-seeing eye. Destruction's going to happen, so I need to do something about it. I need to enter into this story to find a solution. I hope that you're interested in being rescued. I hope that you're interested in becoming a character in this story because you are one, whether you realize it or not. So our rescue story continues in the book of Exodus. Now, Exodus just means a going out or a departure. I liked Andy's definition of kind of following God. Exodus is the story of following God. Well, it's, it's also like just a pulling out, a pulling up. So imagine you're drowning in black water. It's a being pulled out of the water. If you're in a burning house, it's being pulled out of the house. If you're drowning in quicksand, every young child's fears, it's being pulled out of the quicksand. And this is what God does for his people in the book of Exodus. See, God's people are in captivity. They're in bondage. They have multiplied and they have filled the land of Egypt. So these 12 sons, uh, 11, not counting Joseph, they go down to Egypt and they multiply they obey God's Genesis 1 command where he said, be fruitful, multiply. They obey that. And they begin to, to fill the land of Egypt with the descendants of Abraham. They know, or at least some of them remember, that a great rescuer will come from his line, from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so they take part in that by, by having offspring, by, by giving birth and multiplying the family. And in Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 through 14, we're not going to look at it, but God promised Abraham something. God promised Abraham that his descendants would be taken into captivity in a foreign land, and after 400 years, they would be brought out of captivity. And this is important because God promised Abraham a promised land. The promised land is the land of Canaan, kind of modern-day Israel. That region, that was what God had promised to Abraham in his context. And so, well, the people are in Egypt now. They're not in Israel. They're not in their homeland. And so, at some point, they need to come back because that's part of the story. But at first, nothing happens. 
50 years pass, nothing happens. 100 years pass, 200 years pass. The people of Israel, they're multiplying. They're growing in numbers. They're, they're getting larger and larger, but nothing's happening. They're still in captivity 300 years. Something is going to happen. They've heard the song. They've heard the story that, that something's going to happen. Another form of storytelling is music. Now, I am not particularly a musician. I played the piano for like 10 years, and I stopped. Um, but music tells a story, doesn't it? And I think there's a kind of music that, that compares to where we are in the story. And I actually think uh, a, a rock power ballad is the exact kind of illustration for where we are. Now, if you've heard a power ballad, a rock power ballad, it starts very slow. It starts kind of ebbing and, and flowing, and it's kind of quiet. But, it, but as it goes along, it starts to get loud. It starts to get really loud, and it starts to get really passionate and there's uh, the, the drums get in there, and then the guitar gets in there, and then there's a choir. And, and it be, can become this like theatrical performance as everyone's joining in the song, everyone is singing. Now, I want to just go ahead and demonstrate for you <laughs> that I'm just kidding, I'm not going to, but think of We Are the Champions by Queen. That's the one that popped into my mind. I've paid my dues time after time. I've done my sentence, but I've committed no crime. And bad mistakes? I've made a few. I've had my share of sand kicked in my face, but I have come through. And I need to just go on and on and on. And we are the champions. All right, no one wants to hear that. But that's really what happens, right? It's just this, this, huge, this huge building. That's where we enter the story. Something is finally happening there's an up chorus. There's this, this, this bursting into song because God is finally on the scene. God is on the move. There's another place that that happens in the Bible in Matthew chapter 1, but we're looking at Exodus today. So Exodus is the up chorus. God has finally arrived, but uh-oh, so has God's enemy. See, just like Genesis chapter one, well, Genesis chapter three, an enemy of God has arrived on the scene. Pharaoh, he's determined to enslave and destroy God's people. If you read Genesis chapter one through three and then read the first chapters of Exodus, you'll actually see some parallels between the opening of Exodus and the opening of Genesis. In both, the people are blessed. They're multiplying. Well, they haven't multiplied yet in Genesis chapter 1, but they've given that command. There's this, there's this well-being. But then an evil figure enters into the story. What do we call this in a story arc? It's the antagonist, the one who's going to make war on the protagonist and make the protagonist's life difficult. And in Genesis chapter 3, it's a serpent. It's a snake. It's a dragon. And it's Satan embodied. It's the evil one, isn't it? But in Exodus, it's, it's, it's Pharaoh. It's the evil one in a different form. And this time, uh, he, he is again out to destroy the people of God. That was the serpent's goal. The serpent's goal was to destroy God's people. 
And Pharaoh's same goal is just that. Now, why is Pharaoh hostile towards Joseph's descendants, towards the people of God? In verse 10, I actually think we give a, get a little bit of an answer. Well, it says, you know, a new king in Egypt came to power, and he didn't really know anything about the Israelites, verses 8 and 9. Well, if you look back in history, uh, to about 1,700 to 1,500 years before the birth of Christ, uh, the Hyksos ruled Egypt. The Hyksos were a particular people group that were not Egyptian, that were Semitic in their background. And it was about 200 years that they were in charge of Egypt. They were in the Pharaoh's kind of position. And it would make sense if Pharaoh... Uh, at that time, when he had Semitic backgrounds, actually chose another Semite, Joseph, a Jewish person, to rise into power. But eventually, the native Egyptians, the native rulers, pushed out the Hyksos, pushed out the non-Egyptian rulers, the non-Jewish, uh, uh, the, the, the Jewish people. They pushed them out, the, well, the Semitic people. And so you can imagine when the, the new pharaoh's in charge, he would be a little concerned that there's this great people group that aligned themselves, that were blessed by the old ruler. In fact, I think you can see that in verse 10. We must deal shrewdly with them because uh, if we don't, they will become more numerous and war breaks out, they will join our enemies. If they are Jewish in heritage, they will join kind of the Semite Egyptian rulers. And so, when this new guy comes to power, he says, well, we're going to deal shrewdly with them. We're going to destroy them. And as we go through the book of Exodus, we'll, he, Pharaoh will loudly and clearly realize that the Israelites are the people of God. But at the beginning, what does he try to do? <laughs> he, he sentences them to build uh, cities. And how are they to do it? They're to make bricks of mud and mortar. Now, what is this parallel? This parallels the curse in Genesis chapter 3. God cursed people as a result of sin to turn into dust. So what is symbolizing death? Dust, dirt, mud, mortar. See, Pharaoh has come along and he knows that the only power he has is, is ultimately death over the people of God. That's, that's the whole mission of Satan. So Satan, in one way, is driving the people of God into the dirt. They are getting mud. They are getting mortar in their fingernails. They are being driven into death by the enemy of God. And notice the Pharaoh's posture in verse 8. He, he arises in Egypt. The ESV says, now there arose a new king over Egypt. The posture is one who is in command, who's over everything, who has the true power. But we're going to learn through the story of Exodus that Pharaoh doesn't have the true power. He doesn't have the right to, to, to kill the people of God. He doesn't have the right to sentence them to death. Another kind of name for Exodus is a power narrative. It's a power story. It's a conflict. At least the first half is between God and the serpent between the people of God and the enemies of God. And God, over and over again, in surprising ways, shows that he will defeat the serpent and those that align themselves with him every single time. 
See, God uses the faith of two ordinary women to defeat Pharaoh, to defeat the serpent, to foil his plans. Pharaoh commands two Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Puah, to kill every baby boy. Now, the Hebrews probably needed more than just two midwives if they've become a numerous people. So perhaps these were the heads of certain guilds, uh, midwife guilds. But you can imagine that they were very involved in the process. And that culture to be a midwife wasn't just simply the birthday. They were involved uh, giving input in conception, in the pregnancy, in the delivery, and in child care. And I talked to uh, Trish, our own, not, not Hebrew midwife, but our own doula, our own doula at Cornerstone. And one of the things she said to me was just, I couldn't imagine ever taking the life of a baby that I've kind of worked so hard to help bring into this world. And I bet, I bet they felt the exact same way. But the serpent's plan, the enemy of God's plan, the antagonist's plan, every time is to turn life into death. To take what God has created for good and beauty, to turn it into to destruction, to despair. And see, when Pharaoh is, is giving this command, he is giving voice to evil. And so what do Shifra and Puah do? Do they obey Pharaoh? Do they trust him? <laughs> they don't make that same mistake that Adam and Eve made in the garden. Instead, they trust God. They put their faith in God. It says in verse 17, the midwives feared God. To fear God is to have awe, to have respect, to have honor, to realize that God is God and I am not. That he is the one who has all the true power. See, Pharaoh can take their lives. They are putting their lives on the line for these unborn babies. It's true. They are putting their lives on the line for, uh, for the, the unborn, but then also just to trusting in God. Pharaoh could kill them, but they know they don't, they don't fear the one who can kill the body, but the one who can kill the soul, God himself. They make, they make the right choice, but Pharaoh, he's going to make the wrong choice. Over and over again through the story of Exodus, Pharaoh is going to choose to trust in himself and not God. But through the story of Exodus, he's going to realize that he is a tiny big man. <laughs> that he is someone who has a bigger view of himself than he should have. Now, I can relate with that. <laughs> Uh, the Saturday before Thanksgiving, I, I did the, uh, our, my gym, our CrossFit gym, did what's called the Thanksgiving Throwdown, which is kind of like this tournament, and you do it with a friend, and it's a whole bunch of workouts, it's three different workouts, and you do them together, and you try to get your personal best, your personal best score in the different events, and try to beat out the other teams. And there was one point in the event where I, I got a new personal record, a new personal best for lifting weight. I lifted 225 pounds from the floor to my chest. So that, I thought that was pretty good. You know, I, I walked around for the rest of that day and I was just kind of like, all right, you know, <laughs> okay, this is working a little bit here. <laughs> and then, I think it was last week, I watched a video on YouTube of a man lifting 465 pounds. And he didn't do it to his chest, he did it above his head. And suddenly I realized, wow, I'm not very big. I'm not very strong. 
this other guy is way more talented than me. Now, take that same concept and multiply it to God. God, it says his, his footstool is the universe. His footstool is the world. God is, is so much greater, so much stronger. <laughs> and Pharaoh wants to have an arm wrestling match with that guy, with God. I want us to think about how this applies to our lives because I think it does. See, God wrote our story. This is a little different than your bullets, and I changed it on our secretary. Sorry. God wrote our story, and he's the one who has all the power. And oftentimes, we enter into the story, and we think, I can arm wrestle God. I'm going to be the one in charge of my life. And that was Joe's story, wasn't it? Kind of thinking, I'm in control. But the truth is, we're never in control. Not even close because God is God and we are not. He's the author of the narrative. He's the author of the big story of everything. We're a character in that story. We're not the author. We're not the writer. I hope as we go through the book of Exodus that you'll stay, that you'll come back, and that you'll realize where the true power lies. It's in God. It's not in me. God is the one who rescues his people from Egypt. God is the one who defeats Pharaoh with these supernatural, amazing, incredible plagues. God is the one who will save anyone who trusts in him today. I can't compare to that. I am tiny. I can't compare to the creator, God. Application number two is this. We can find our place in God's story by faith. So you can enter into that grand narrative, into this rescue story, finding your place by trusting in God. And if you don't find your story in God's story, you will search for it in other places. Our hearts are created to be a part of something greater than ourselves, to be a part of that grand redemptive narrative. Right now, we live in a time of media oversaturation. There are stories everywhere. There's, there's Netflix, there's Hulu, there's Disney, there's, there's stars, there's, there's Amazon Prime, there's HBO, and the list goes on and on and on. It's kind of like its own bubble. There's this media bubble. There's this story bubble. Everyone's writing a story, and everyone wants you to, to buy into that story and to visual, kind of visualize yourself as part of the story. And it's because we're created to be a part of stories. We're created to to be a character in a narrative. We want to be a part of something. But if we look for our hope, if we look for our place in those stories, we will never find our place. I really enjoy Star Wars. You will know that if I'm your pastor. But if I ever look for my place in Star Wars, if I ever think that is the point of life is to be like a Star Wars fan or try to be a Jedi, I have missed the point of the story, haven't I? Because there's a, march, there's a much greater, there's a much bigger story going on that I can be a part of, that I can enter into. Maybe the story that you're buying into has nothing to do with entertainment, Instead, you're trying to, uh, to buy into, you're trying to find your place in a love story or a relationship story or a family story or a career story, an education story, a success story. 
What story are you buying into instead of that great rescue story that God has provided? As we go through this story in the book of Exodus, I hope that you'll see that Pharaoh thinks he's the author of his his story. He thinks he's like the beginning and the end of his story. He thinks he is in charge of his story. And over and over again throughout the narrative, it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And eventually, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. But it's not until after Pharaoh has spent a lot of time hardening his heart. See, Pharaoh believes that he's the point. That he's kind of the big guy. That he's the star of his story. We all have a decision to make. Am I the star of my story? Or is there a different star? Is there a different author? And we can enter into this rescue story by faith, by placing our trust in God and trusting that he knows what's best for our stories. Application number three is that when the story has conflict, we can have hope. There is conflict, and that's a part of the story. God has written that into our narratives. Life won't be easy. And that's, that's a result, ultimately, of our introducing hostility and sin into the relationship. But no matter what we go through, if we know the author, we can trust that the story is good that God will work it out. No matter what we're going through, no matter how painful it is, no matter how frustrating it is, God will work it out. So I want to close with kind of this thought, that God is the hero of the story, and he has come to rescue us. This is the continued narrative in the book of Exodus. It's just the next chapter And we're looking at kind of the inciting incident here in in Exodus chapter 1 as Pharaoh and God begin to stare each other down. It's going to be an interesting uh, interesting series. I hope that you'll come back and be a part of it. But I think there's a point that we need to end on. It is tempting to think that I'm the hero in the story. (laughs) You're, You're not Frodo. You're not Luke Skywalker. God is the hero of the story. God is the ultimate protagonist, not us. In fact, we're not just not the hero. We're more like the damsel in distress. <laughs> we're not Mario. We're Princess Peach. We're not Peter Parker and Spider-Man. We're Mary Jane Watson. We're not Wesley in The Princess Bride. We're Princess Buttercup. We need to be rescued. And if you want to kind of Reverse that. Uh, we're, uh, what's his name? His name is Robert in Enchanted. They kind of reverse the roles. Giselle goes and res- rescues the guy. We're Robert. We need to be rescued by our knight in shining armor. Are you held captive in this world? Are you held captive by your dreams, by your desires, by your wants? Well, God can rescue you. He can rescue me. He's rescued me. And he does this by sending himself. God enters into the story through Jesus Christ. God is our knight in shining armor. He has has waged war on our behalf. He went to, to war against the dragon, against the serpent. Just like the Hebrew midwives laid down their lives for the life of the unborn long before we were ever born, ever created, God laid down the life of his son, Jesus Christ, for us, if you put your faith in him. And Jesus was wounded 
in that battle. Jesus died. He was wounded by the serpent, but he crushed the serpent, but he died. See, Jesus tasted the dirt. Jesus tasted the mud. He didn't just get it in his fingers. Like, he died. He tasted death so that we could be rescued from the grave, so that we don't have to be a damsel in distress anymore. You know what the Bible calls us? It calls us the bride of Christ. There is no shame in needing God. There's only hope. A story arc, it has an inciting incident, it has rising conflict, and then it has a peak, has a climax. Jesus Christ is kind of the climax of the great narrative of everything. He is the peak. He is the summit. If you're thinking of a mountain, he is on the very top. But the gospel, the good news of Christianity, is that Jesus reaches down into the depths of hell and pulls us out and puts us on the top with him. That's Christianity. Do you want to be a part of the story? I know I do. (laughs) I want to be up on the mountaintop with Jesus. I want to join into the very heart of the story, and you can, through Christ. God is the hero of the story. Jesus is the hero of the story, and he has come to rescue us. Let's pray. God, you're good, you're great, and yet you love us. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I pray for this offering, for our closing song and our announcements with these final moments of the service and our fellowship time afterwards. Just be an offering of thanksgiving to you. This is a little piece of the story right here, God. We're so grateful to enjoy it and to be a part of it. It's in the name of your Son we pray, Jesus Christ.